Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Well, hey, guys, here we are a week out. We forgot to warn people last week that it was only going to be one week that they would have to do without us. So here we are post Super Bowl. I can't help but think that we made our own little contribution to the result. RJ, I take it you watched and absorbed the whole thing. Man, it was so great. I actually only caught the beginning of the first half, the last two minutes of the first half, and the second half because I had to work a service at church that night. But I got to see the Nick Foles reverse touchdown catch at the end of the first half, which was incredible. And then, of course, the Tom Brady fumble. Me and my boys completely lost our minds. So it was a wonderful Sunday night. I was, I was pretty excited about it. Mm-hmm. Sarah, did you watch? Yeah, I only understood like 40% of what RJ just said. But I did watch the game. <laughs> and it was yeah. really fun. I watched it with my husband. And he's fun to watch sports with because he understands everything. Doesn't bother trying to explain it to me because he knows I <laughs> won't process it but he's so enthusiastic so he's fun to watch it with and he was like thrilled so it was fun I think the onion had some joke about how Philadelphia fans after victory say oh that's nice and kind of continue on with their day that they uh it was just all all hell broke loose there in Philadelphia (laughs) from what I understand it's so crazy. It's like, we won the Super Bowl. Let's destroy our city. I know. Every time I see this, I'm like, y'all better stop talking bad about rednecks. I mean, you know, like. I talked plenty bad about Philly fans last week. I'm surprised I had, there's not, there's probably hit out, you know, on me from the city of brotherly love. The person who really split the opinion was Justin Timberlake. Oh or in fact, it seems like I was sitting next to a woman uh, who shall remain nameless, uh, Kate Westall, and she, um, she just thought it was terrible. I didn't think it was terrible, but it did not have the Lady Gaga magic. Maybe he needed to hear a Sarah Condon sermon beforehand. I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe that was a, maybe that was the problem. Yeah. Everyone um, remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big Justin Timberlake fan. I have to agree. It was like he went so quickly from one song into the next and it just felt really like small scale. But David, I'm honestly dying to know what you thought of the Prince thing, because everyone's so mad at him about that. And you know, I'm not say this cautiously, not a huge Prince fan. Mm. But I know you love Prince. Like what when you saw him up there? Like, what was your like gut response? I didn't think it was sacrilegious or anything like that. To me, it just reminded me of how amazing Prince's Super Bowl show was and how it was like the law, basically, yeah. coming yeah. in and descending. Like Tom Brady, we talked about last week, you see Prince, and you remember what it was like when he played Purple Rain, and it was just mm-hmm. transcendent. And we were so far away from that. And, you know, the commentators want to make it something about, you know, just our moment and even just whiteness versus black appropriation or mm-hmm. something like that. I don't know how you could do a Minneapolis thing and not pay some tribute yes. to Prince. Right. Whether or not they had to have an enormous, almost godlike – I was afraid they were going to do, you know, the kind of hologram that they do sometimes of Michael Jackson, where he's actually on the stage and it looks like a human being. They didn't make it look like he was there alive. But to me, it was just a little bit highlighted the slight lameness that we were witnessing. I felt bad kind of for Justin in the middle of that. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. 
What about you, RJ? I just thought back to a few years back how huge he was, like the Jimmy Fallon origin of rap thing and how he did all those Lonely Planet videos with Andy mm-hmm. Samberg. And then he was in that movie Black Snake Moan, which he was actually really, really yeah. good in. Uh, and now suddenly it sort of feels like he's just kind of a not as good Bruno Mars. Mm. Yeah. Honestly, I was like, everything he's doing here, Bruno Mars does twice as well. And I feel bad for even, even the entrance he made. The first thing my wife said, you know, we sort of came out from the crowd was totally reminiscent of Bruno Mars's 24 Carrot Magic intro at Saturday Night Live. You know, when he came mm. out with that song and came from backstage and came on out, it just felt like his moment had passed. Ugh. Well, I mean, the Can't Stop the Feeling song. I mean, that's a huge song. And I like Mirrors. There's some songs in there that just the, the kind of modern hip hop thing where there's not much of a hook. It's just sort of a beat I don't identify with. But when Avery gets close to Michael Jackson territory, my ears perk up. Yeah. But I would say, yeah, you kind of wish Bruno Mars would just be present at absolutely everything that's supposed to be fun. You know? He's yeah. Like, <laughs> I t- he just makes it so all better. Good. Yeah. I have to say that um, Chuck E. Cheese really ruined Can't Stop This Feeling for me. I spend way too much time at Chuck E. Cheese and they freaking love that song. <laughs> It's like on their every three song rotation. What's funny is like now I associate, I liked the song when it came out. I now associate it with like a horde of like six year olds, like doing the six year old version of like, this is my jam, you know, and immediately start dancing. Like, I think he he totally missed an opportunity to reference the Janet Jackson yes. thing. I mean, I was like, "Where's Janet Jackson? I need her redemption moment." No, I totally agree. Or even like a sort of a like, "Let me put my finger in your eye a little bit." I, I would have loved something yeah. about that. But I feel for the guy. You know, you put yourself out there, and kind of no matter what you do, you're gonna get lambasted unless you're Prince, mm-hmm. in which case mm-hmm. you can pull it off, yeah. I guess. And so. also, I mean, Prince is amazing, but also it's like it's always it's always better to be dead, you know. Always, always. <laughs> so always. That's that's. We're talking the about the Hey, Ash Wednesday. Yeah, we're talking about Ash Always better to be dead. What? Any favorite commercials, guys? The Tide thing was just so funny. What's the name of the actor who was in that from uh, Stranger Things? David, I don't know his name, but yeah, David Harbor. Yeah. I thought that was really – I love those Old Spice commercials. So when that guy, the Old Spice guy showed up and it was – it was just – I loved that. I thought it was very funny. I mean Keanu Reeves is – anything he does is funny. I don't know. I, I think I'm, – I'm such a negative Nancy. I really struggled with the commercials and, you know, the Dodge MLK thing obviously was a big deal, made headline news. I just kind of get really tired of one Super Bowl commercial after another that's like, look at us all coming together. Like it wears – me out. I don't know why, but I really, at some point, like I was like three commercials into like a multicultural thing with like music background and like, we are the world. And I'm like juxtaposing that with like watching football. And I'm just like, yeah, I can't do this. Like it just wore me out. I know I'm lame. Yeah. I know I'm lame, but I just. Saccharine optimism. Yeah. I Co-opting sort of our at current activism for marketing purposes is just transparently ugly. I, I loved, that's why I loved the David Schwimmer Skittles things. I don't know if you watched any of those, but they were doing some, this ripoff on Phantasm, which was unbelievable, but also so niche and weird. And they only showed the full ad to one person named Marco Menendez. <laughs> anyway, it does sort of make me <laughs> look forward to the Olympics though. Are you guys Olympics fans? Winter Olympics? RJ, you're the sports guy. I'm, I'm like, you your first, man. <laughs> super sporty, super sporty. I, I probably, I'm bigger on summer, I guess. I'm excited for the winter olympics it should be it should be fun it sort of snuck up on me i'm like oh yeah i guess that's happening this week so yeah opening ceremonies tomorrow night it is interesting that it's taking place in korea with the whole dynamic between south and north 
I don't know. I get more into the Summer Olympics, honestly, but we'll see. I do end up kind of being a sucker for the pageantry of the opening ceremonies, with the exception of, I was not a big fan of the Olympics on the chrome-plated pickup trucks, if you remember that, but like Beijing totally blew me away, and we'll watch tomorrow night. We'll talk about it in two weeks, I guess, but a couple of things that did stick out to me. I was watching a documentary about Sean White, the snowboarder, mm-hmm. and he mentions he's going back to the Olympics and he just got a perfect score in his trial run. But he talks about winning the Olympics when he was like 15 or something like that. And he said it's, it's almost like a refrain. You, you can write it for them. But he said it ushered in the worst period of his life mm. because you win the Olympics and all of a sudden, what is it? The law sets in. You've got to maintain. And then everyone expects you to be this superhuman. So come over and do something to wow us. And he said he didn't know who he was. It was fascinating to watch yet another Olympian affirm this truth, this sad truth, that it's sort of lonely at the top, but the law kind of kills in that respect. And here he is, though, back after he had had this really disastrous Olympics last time. And then the other thing was, I don't know if you guys read that piece, I think we put in The Weekender, about the woman Kim Hyun. Hui, she blew up a plane before the Seoul Games 30 years ago. And the Washington Post had an interview with her because she's sort of done a few interviews in anticipation of the Games. And basically what's fascinating is that she was initially sentenced to death by South Korea because 115 people died. But then she was pardoned the year after saying that she'd been just a tool manipulated by the real perpetrators. And today she has two teenage sons. She goes to church. She wrote a book called Tears of My Soul and donated the proceeds to the family members. But then she says that her deadly role, this is what stuck out to me in the bombing of Korean Airlines Flight 858, is something that leaves her sorry and ashamed. And her key question is, can my sins be pardoned? They probably won't be. Well, you can see why someone like that would go to church. Oh my gosh. I read that. I was like, hey, preachers, here's your sermon this week. I don't even know this story, which is baffling to me. And to read her account of it. And honestly, I did think about our own country and how this would never have happened here. We would not have pardoned someone a year later. I just can't imagine that would have happened. And so it is kind of incredible to me in South Korea that they saw both the horrible thing that she had done and in a lot of ways, the victim that she was, and they gave her her freedom papers and she has had this whole other life. I mean, um, it's an incredible story. It does bring to mind, you know, we're always talking in our culture about whether America is a Christian nation, what it means to be a Christian nation. Like here's an actual image of what a Christian nation might possibly look like, you know, a place of forgiveness and grace that is transformative, saved this woman's life and sent her on a completely different path. And you hope she can find some peace at some point with her maker and herself. What an incredible picture of mercy. I mean, it does remind me of that accidental killers thing from the New Yorker a few months ago, where the American tendency and the tendency probably in the church as well is to take something terrible that's happened and say that we forgive it by sort of minimizing it. And we talked about this last week by saying it was result of your upbringing, your programming here. And yet this woman, it was the result of her upbringing or the state of North Korea. And yet she still did put the bomb in there that killed 115 people. What she needs is not empathy. She needs forgiveness. She needs pardon. And here comes the government with pardon. And she probably goes to a church where they talk about God being able to pardon this. And then still she needs more. 
you know, or right. she will go to her grave wondering, can my sins be pardoned? And I just pray, hope that I get to hear the same voice that she will hear. Exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. And in some sense, isn't that why people go to church every week or regularly, however often they go? Because this message is too good to believe. It's too good to be true. You know, whoever said, you know, we're leaky buckets, we hear it, but then we go out in the world and have relationships that are not gracious or not merciful. And then we think, can this really be true? Am I really forgiven? And that's why we go back to church to be reminded week after week after week. It really is true. Jesus died. You are forgiven. You're set free. I think we all, whether we acknowledge it or not, struggle with that. She's just more honest about it because her sin is more egregious and visible. But don't we all wonder, will I really be forgiven? Has this really been washed away? Yeah. I mean, I posted a story this week about a woman finding out information about her parents, really powerful stuff that allowed her to love her parents who she'd experienced as aloof and cruel, finding out stuff that had sort of diminished or at least shrunk it down to size or given her some compassion for her folks. And compassion was the great word there because it was beautiful and is a moment of kind of grace occurring, but it was different from kind of what this woman needs. You know, there's both of these factors going on. I was struck by the sort of concrete nature, the number, even the number. We don't like to talk about economics when it comes to these things, but that number 115, Mm. it's almost enough to wrap your brain around, you know, when you hear about how many people died on the Eastern front in Russia and millions doesn't compute 115 almost kind of (laughs) computes. Um, Anyway, I think that actually (laughs) we're talking about pardon, we're talking about real forgiveness, and why not, since we're coming up on it, talk then about marriage and Valentine's Day. (laughs) I sent you guys something which I thought was funny, Valentine's Day poems for married people. Did you get to read those? Yes. um, I would love to read my favorite one. Please do. Please do. I feel like it is is what goes through my husband's head, you know, at least every Thursday and Saturday night. Okay. The kids are finally down and you are looking at me in that way, but not really looking at me tease. Or are you just spacing out? Yep. You're spacing out. You have unzipped your skirt and your baggy underpants ride way, way up on your hips. How old are those anyway? You pull on some sweatpants and a t-shirt and a sweater and a fleece. Oh my God. (laughs) And a robe if you're me. And I'm not able to make out any contour of your body at all. I think you are sending me a signal in the way that married couples send each other signals. And just so we're clear, you're signaling, I'm going to call my sister and order sushi. You should do something too. <laughs> I knew, I, I, when you started reading, I was like, I bet she's going to read that one. I bet she's going to read that one. <laughs> like, my husband used to call me the dude because when we lived in New York, I'd be so cold. And I still do it sometimes a year. I would be fully clothed that night, like in what I had worn that day. And then I would put a bathrobe over it he's like wow babe looking good (laughs) my wife does the exact same thing she was given this long fleecy bathrobe which is the most comfortable thing on earth but it looks like a bath mat like it literally (laughs) looks like a bath mat i'm like oh man that bath mat just really does it for me the other one that killed me i know this is probably restricting us to people with married with small children but the one uh says when we have children they will watch no television no screens we will be better from those other parents. And we will take pride in our being better. Fast forward seven years and it's Sunday morning, 6 a.m. Do you know who our friend is? SpongeBob SquarePants. That's who. (laughs) And yes, you can have Mentos for breakfast. Oh, man. so true. I laughed the whole way through this. I mean, also, assignments... If not you, please point me to the best person who can help. Winter. (laughs) It's been dark for like five hours. 
and yet the children are still awake, <laughs> and I'm only a little drunk. What you call yelling, I call making a point. <laughs> and, uh, stop yelling at me. I'm not yelling. I'm talking normally. No, I swear you're yelling. Yeah. Do you guys have any plans for Valentine's Day? Speaking of which, I know, Sarah, you're going to throw yourself on your husband's grave. Uh, <laughs> I'm so happy this year that I have an excuse for not being able to make any plans because I have a work commitment on that particular right. day. So right. that is a convenience for priests this year. I hadn't thought about that. Isn't it? Oh, honey. Oh, I, oh, I'm so sorry. Day. By yeah. the way, yeah. you're going to die. Yeah, yeah that's, right. that's right. We're all going to die. I love that XKCD cartoon that just has a big heart on it. It says, happy Valentine's Day, because love isn't complicated enough already. <laughs> it's, oh, it's so true. People brace themselves. Oh, Folks yeah. who, are, who are, there's so, so much loneliness and so much loneliness within marriages and within relationships and so much yearning for the past or whatnot. And Valentine's Day is so masochistic almost. I mean, it seems to symbolize the opposite of what it's supposed to symbolize to many, many people. And for that, I actually am glad that it's also Ash Wednesday this year. But this got me thinking, you know, we talked about romance and dating a few weeks ago from the Aziz Ansari Grace perspective. But I think it is important to kind of think about romance in a more positive way and not to tear it down completely, but also not to have a false view. And my favorite piece that's been written about married romance or what romance she would say really is, is what Heather Haverleski wrote a few years ago when she said what romance really means after 10 years of marriage. But this, I think, speaks more loudly than to just the folks who are married. She writes, our dumb culture tricks us into believing that romance is the suspense of not knowing whether someone loves you not or yet. The suspense of wanting to have sex, but not being able to yet. The suspense of wanting all problems and puzzles to be solved by one person without knowing if they have any time or affinity for your particular puzzles yet. We think romance is a mystery in which you add up clues that you will be loved. She says, what I would argue is the most deeply romantic thing of all is the palpable, reassuring sense that it's okay to be a human being. Because until you feel absolutely sure that you won't eventually be abandoned, it's maybe not 100% clear that any other human mortal can tolerate another human mortal. The smells, the sounds, the repetitive fixations on the same dumb shit over and over, even as you develop a kind of resigned gaze of, oh, this again, in, say, marital years one through five, you also feel faintly unnerved by your own terrible humanness. But then she says, now I'm going to tell you my most romantic story of all. I was very sick out of the blue with some form of dysentery. It hit overnight. I got up to go to the bathroom and I fainted on the way and cracked my ribs on the side of the bathtub. My husband discovered me there, passed out in a scene that, well, imagine what would happen if you let Todd Solons direct an episode of Game of Thrones. Think about what that might look like. My husband was not happy about this scene, but he handled it without complaint that is the very definition of romantic, not only not being made to feel crappy about things that are clearly out of your control, but being quietly cared for by someone who can shut up and do what needs to be done under duress. It's so true. I mean, I just, I think about like this past Tuesday night, Tuesdays are bad days for me because it's my first day in the office. And so I come home and I'm weirdly tired and we have a lot of meetings on Tuesday. So I'm weirdly tired and, you know, children, <laughs> I texted my husband one of those texts you send to your spouse. And I was like, oh, my God, when are you coming home? And he came home and I was like, I, I like want to kill everyone right now. Like, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's hormones. I have no idea, but I want to kill everyone right now. And he just like 
quietly sat at the kitchen table with the kids, like helped the older one get his homework done, read to the younger one, like just left me alone in the kitchen to like cook in silence and like growl at anyone who crossed the threshold. And it was <laughs> such a gift. I mean, to just be myself in that moment. And that's always the weird thing with marriage. And we're not always able to do that for one another. But when we are, it completely softens the person who's having a tough time. It's like a miracle every time it happens. Like I felt so loved, regardless of the fact that I was being a total asshole, you know, like marriage is like such a wonderful, painful mystery to me that I can't believe I get to like be a part of it. I mean, it's just crazy. This piece reminded me of something that happened about, gosh, what is it now? Almost 20 years ago, it was my first job in ministry. I was young and married and super idealistic. And I was on this church retreat. And there was this older gentleman there who was a little contrarian. And I think probably was also trying to needle me a little bit because I was a you know 24-year-old know-it-all. And he said something along the lines of, he was divorced and remarried. And he said, I think everyone needs a second marriage. Everyone needs a second marriage. And I was like, that's, come on, that's so ridiculous. And the more I thought about that over the years, I, I thought to myself, he's exactly right. Because what he meant was, in the first marriage is so full of idealism and hopes and dreams and law and judgment and hence disappointment that at some point it needs to come to an end and there needs to be a second marriage that's a little bit more relaxed and more about just accepting yourself and your spouse for who they are. Of course, you know, he meant an actual second marriage, but I came to see it more as within every marriage, you're going to have a, you know, if it's going to work and go the distance, there's going to be a first marriage, there's going to be a second marriage, there's going to be a third marriage within the same relationship. Mm -hmm. And I used that story once in church, and I got just people really reacting to it, especially people that have been married for 40 years. And they said, yeah, we know when our first marriage came to an end. And then our second marriage, and our they could, they could actually talk about sort of the death of their youthful expectation, but moving into a more um, I don't want to say mature because I think that I think there still is romance in marriage. Yeah. Like, I hope so. Like I'm a romantic and I definitely, man, I, I love my wife and I have moments I look at her. I'm like, you are incredible, the best. And I love you. And then there's other moments that are not quite so, uh, quite so bright, <laughs> but, uh, but I do think there's something about one marriage ending and another beginning. So I, I'm thankful for that cantankerous old man. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think the same is true in the Christian life, right? That even when we're raised in the church, like there's always a moment when you're like, oh, all of that is going to fall away and something new is going to come and it's going to be deeper and it's going to be more real and it's going to have less sort of my expectations of what, you know, my personal relationship with Jesus should look like. It, it is that there's such a parallel there. Death and resurrection. Yeah. You know, one thing has yeah. to die in order that the, the new thing might live. I, I do get worried sometimes that when we talk about in the sort of Alan de Botton and Heather Havaleski kind of way about this sort of demythologizing of romance, does it leave any kind of mystery or excitement or magic? And I think that they maybe underplay it because it's been so built up with the sort of soulmate stuff and the, the rom-coms over the years and basically the Valentine's industrial complex. It does need to be taken down for the sake of love, for the sake of love. But there is still, I think, within marriage, at least within marriage I know, which is my own, there is plenty of romance. Yes. There's also a huge amount of reality and love and forthrightness. And I think that when she talks, though, about the assurance, sometimes when people think marriage itself is stupid or something, you want to say, well, it's the closing of the back door 
it's the final yes being said so that the boys in the basement are free to come out and no one's going to go anywhere. And that's what grace is. At least that's an echo of how God relates to us. That's why my father is always talking about romantic relationships as a sort of the closest analogy we have to our relationship with God. That's what's going on. It's that yes, come what may. And that's sort of what Charlotte was talking about on the website this week, don't you think? Yeah, I loved her piece. I mean, Charlotte gets. She's a fantastic writer, but she wrote here about her husband and sort of being this far into marriage and what that looks like. And the piece that particularly sort of hit me, which judge away, was 10 years ago, I would have amputated my own legs to finally find my husband. Now I have him and I can't help from time to time, but deeply long for the freedoms of the unfettered possibilities of my single days. <laughs> I sometimes get caught in daydreams of past guys I used to hold dear, imagining what may have happened if the timing were right. How would my life be different? I think about people like Ryan Gosling and also that time I ran into Jake Gyllenhaal hiking at Solstice <laughs> Canyon. What if he had noticed me? What if I had actually spoken to him? Would that have led us into cinema-worthy romance with butterflies, aching, slow-mo smooches, and golden hour lighting? Probably. It's so well written, but it also points to that tendency we have towards escapism in marriage, where we're like, well, but what if this would have happened? And what if that would have happened? Which actually, I think, I shouldn't say this, but is one of the best things about social media is you can actually look up your old boyfriends, and you can be like... Yeah, I'm good. You know, so. <laughs> I won. I won. I'm justified. I did, I did well. Yeah. I did well. I chose, uh, I chose correctly. That was right. It has yes, nothing to do yes. with a sovereign God. I, I made this choice. So, um, yeah. No, I thought Charlotte's piece was wonderful. It reminded me, actually, of on the day of our 10-year anniversary, we had, of course, a church and school festival at my husband's church. And there was a downpour of rain. And someone had to call an ambulance for someone else. And I was like, oh my gosh. I ran into a parishioner who I love, who's probably 20 years older than I am. And I kind of bemoaned to her. I was like, this is our 10th wedding anniversary. And she looked at me, I'm like soaking wet. I'm, you know, holding our kids' hands, like waiting for the ambulance to get there for this person. And she goes, oh yeah, this is exactly what your 10-year wedding anniversary is supposed to look like. And it was like, Oh, like I don't have to actually expect this grand thing that like no one can produce and probably would overwhelm me if they did, you know? So then we put the kids in front of a computer screen in Josh's office and we found a bottle of wine that was not actually communion wine. And there were a couple of friends there and we split a bottle of wine among six people and toasted our 10th wedding anniversary. I like Charlotte's piece. I think it hits on that very real notion of there is a lot of romance and the romance is total grace that you can find that far into marriage. Yeah, our last wedding anniversary last summer, which was number 18, I was sitting in my office. 18 years, it's crazy, coming up on 19. And my wife texts me at 1130, and she's like, so I just realized today's our anniversary. And I was like, oh my God. But I called her, and we had a good laugh about it, and we went out to dinner, and it was fun. But it was like, okay, this is this yeah. is where we are. Good. Where we just – I remember the day before, but then the day happened. It was like, nope, completely yeah. forgot. I read Charlotte's piece and thought, gosh, that Alex Getz must be an incredible dude <laughs> because for Charlotte to feel okay writing that, yeah. I yeah. think as just – 
knowing what marriage is like. I know for a fact she ran it by yeah. him. And for her to feel like she could do that and process that and communicate on that level struck me as an amazing testament actually to their relationship. So, you know, sometimes it's so hard to talk about marriage and sort of complain about some of the mundanities, but also excitement. Because I run into so many people who are dying to find someone. Mm -hmm. That's all they want mm -hmm. is to find someone. And yes, you can say, hey, read this. Once you're in marriage, you'll be wishing for your single days. So enjoy it now. But I think that the prayer is that people would not be alone. I think that if you're the kind of person that can be alone and is like a sort of a St. Paul tent maker type, that's incredible. I've met maybe like two of those in my entire life. And I think um, loneliness is such a huge, I had to preach about this this past weekend, but it was such a big, enormous ginormous elephant in our culture. Is Valentine's Day helping, hurting? I don't know. But I do know that something that brings us together is actually, ironically enough, Ash Wednesday, mm. which, you know, I grew up with a father who always would sit out when they did Ash Wednesday, the imposition of the ashes. He was just like, you know, that's why he would also never be called father. He was always Mr. or Dr. He just said it's explicitly against what Jesus said. And I hear that in the back of my mind and, and I kind of roll my eyes a little bit. But also over the years, I think I've warmed up to it a little bit more as I've come to understand Ash Wednesday, the ashes on the forehead, less as a boasting and more as like a scarlet letter. You know, we were saying we're a sinner that we're going to die. And that doesn't mean we can't turn it into a vehicle of self-justification. But I'm dying to hear what you guys think about Ash Wednesday. The quote I want to read, though, is the one that I think she puts it just so beautifully is what Nadia says, why Ash Wednesday is her favorite day of the year. She said, it's my favorite day of the church here in Lent is my favorite season. Our culture has quite ruined Christmas and Easter with Santa and the Easter Bunny and all the grotesque consumerism and made-for-TV specials behind it all. But oddly, nobody waits every year to watch the Ash Wednesday peanut special. There are no doorbuster sales at 4 a.m. on the first day of Lent. There are no big garish displays in the middle of the mall with mechanical children in sackcloth and ashes. Nope. We get this one all to ourselves. Our culture has no idea what to do with a day that celebrates the fact that we all sin and are going to die. And what is so wonderful about Ash Wednesday and Lent is that through being marked with the cross and reminded of our own mortality, we are free. We are free to hear the song of our own salvation, which tells of Christ who offers life and forgiveness. So, RJ and Sarah, what does Ash Wednesday mean to you? I love Ash Wednesday. I've always loved Ash Wednesday. I loved it when I was a kid in Mississippi because no one did Ash Wednesday except for our church and the Catholic church up the road. And so it was very exotic, which I know is the wrong reason to like things. But my mother is the first one to tell you that I will get into any line of work if there's a special outfit. So I liked that there was this thing that marked us in the community as different I like it now probably because of the hospital work I did. And I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast before, but, you know, Ash Wednesday is the busiest day in hospital ministry, period, the end, because every single person in the hospital seems to want to be ashed. And when I was a hospital chaplain, I remember encountering most people there were not from some sort of liturgical tradition where Ash Wednesday was a part of their piety. In fact, a lot of the people who asked me for ashes were not even Christian. I mean, I remember specifically going into a woman's room who was Muslim who asked for ashes. And I know that there's a big argument in the church against things like ashes to go. 
but I'm not on that side of the argument. I actually really think it's this great reminder that we're going to die. And it's interesting to me in a place that people go to for healing, that they seem to find great comfort in that message, that death was inevitable, that it was going to happen to everyone, and that salvation was promised to them. And I don't know how the Muslim lady processed, you know, getting the ashes. I have no idea. But she asked for them, and I showed up and did them. So... I guess what I think is I'm, I'm sitting here, this is the first time this thoughts occurred to me, and it goes back to what Nadi Boltz-Weber said about there not being an Ash Wednesday Peanuts special, but the Christmas Peanuts special is kind of an Ash Wednesday story. Ooh, that's good, man. I love the Christmas Peanuts special because it's about Charlie Brown getting out there, trying to make Christmas happen for himself and getting all this advice. You need involvement. We need a Christmas pageant. You're going to be the director. And you know you need to do all this stuff. And it doesn't work. And he ends up feeling totally depressed. And he's like, I've ruined Christmas. I don't understand this. Can anyone tell me what Christmas is about? And that's when Linus comes out and says, I'll tell you what Christmas is about. You know, There were shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch of their flocks by night. And, and so it's this incredible death and resurrection moment where Charlie Brown comes to the end of himself and has good news preached in the middle of that. So I guess maybe the reason I feel a little ambiguous about Ash Wednesday is because I feel like every day is Ash Wednesday. Maybe the good thing about Ash Wednesday is you can get up and you can preach that. You can go heavy. You can go deep. You can go dark. You can go death and resurrection. You know, we're all going to die. All of this is going away. It's all going to be ashes. The only thing that's left is you and this God who loves you unconditionally for eternity. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like every day is Ash Wednesday. I think that's a beautiful sentiment. You know, I, it marks the beginning of Lent as, as if even people that don't celebrate Lent or don't acknowledge it, it's become this kind of, you know, you re-up on your New Year's resolutions. Ash Wednesday, ironically enough, is sort of like the low anthropology feast day, if there's such a thing. It's like, hey, remember, it's all passing away and none yeah. of your self-improvement is actually going to work. And people say, oh, that's so to downer, that's so terrible. Just be quiet, go over in a corner and don't talk about it. But it's the high anthropology, it's the inflated anthropology with which we're surrounded that is causing so much despair. It's people's insane expectations of what their life Life would be like and what they would feel like. And when those aren't met, the crushing guilt and anxiety and depression and sadness and defeat with which it's met. I mean, I want to read a little bit of the piece that we go back to every year that someone wrote for Mockingbird called Possibly Insane Thoughts about Ash Wednesday. There is always something half comical, half tragic about the banalities of what we, quote, give up for Lent. And the knowledge of the unimpressiveness of our efforts in this area can lead us toward either triviality or despair. We can sacrifice the unimportant and in this way not really care about what we are doing, or we can be crushed by the paltry efforts we make as they compare to the awesome horror of Christ's death. Lent, when taken in the cycle of man's attempts at self-justification, can fix our gaze towards our own doing and in this way upend the point of the liturgical season, which is what Christ has done. Ash Wednesday, then, should be seen as standing guard over Lent, reminding us at its start of the core truth of Christianity. We must give up, period. We must give up not this or that habit or food or particular sin, but the entire project of self-justification, of making God's love contingent on our own achievements. And the liturgy of this day goes right to the ultimate reality we struggle against, which is death itself. Ash Wednesday is a day for the hopeless and suffering who are affirmed in their hopelessness and suffering rather than commanded to take up the task of self-improvement. When we give up hope, 
hope in our own abilities and efforts in doing, then the reality of God's grace truly can become manifest. It is the occasion for an affirmation of who we are, not ultimately a plea to transcend our mortal condition. Now, people get nervous when you use that word affirmation there, but it's the acceptance that we are finite, that we are creatures who not only will die, but in many ways deserve to die. But if you don't want to go there, just say it is the admission that the human situation is irremediable from within itself. And so for Lent, we look to the outside, to what all human beings, all sinners, all those who will die actually and truly need which is a savior. I love that. I mean, I really think the best advice you can give people from the pulpit about Lent is to get up there and tell them to pick out something impossible to give up. You know what I mean? Like for me, that would probably be four letter words, like tell them to give up something that they do all the time, every day, constantly, and tell them they should definitely promise to God that they're going to give that up, you know, like make that promise on Ash Wednesday. And then, you know, at 3 p.m. on Ash Wednesday, when they've already started doing whatever this thing is, tell them to read Luke chapter four and tell them to think about this vision of Jesus overcoming evil, of beginning his path to suffering on our behalf, of Jesus's righteousness filling in that vast space (laughs) of like who we thought we were, but who we can never be. And that's Mm. where we find our comfort at Lent. It's in our failure. So I don't tell people don't give anything up. I'm just like, here's the plan when it fails, you know, because it's going to fail. Yeah. Go, go big or go home or go big. And then when you fail, then then, go uh, home. That's good. Go home. That's right. Give up something you, you, uh, that's utterly, utterly impossible to give up. To me, the good news is that I I struggle to give up. You know, I think about, you know, Charlton Heston holding up that gun from my cold, dead hand. (laughs) And that's that's how I feel about my own little projects, my own attempts at self-righteousness, my own attempts to self-justify. To me, the good news is that even in the midst of my inability to give up, God still loves me and died for me. Gave himself up. Yeah, gave himself up. Exactly. Exactly. I don't think I've ever been able to give anything up for Lent. In fact, there was there's <laughs> one was it one day, I guess two two days in my life when I attempted to fast, both times when I was trying to make really weighty decisions. And the first time my wife and I did it together and we were trying to make a decision about it. We were living in California, we'd been offered a job in New York. We're like, should we go? Should we not go? Let's really pray and fast. Well, so we got to get the end of the next day and or at the end of that day and, and I said to my wife, Do you hear anything? She goes, Nope. She goes, You hear anything? I go, Nope. I said, what are we going to do? And we said, well, I guess we'll just, we'll make the decision that we'll regret least, you know, try to be courageous and not live in fear. And then another time when I was fasting, and this ties into Valentine's Day, actually, oh, may I tell this story? Or I'll tell this story. Maybe we'll edit it out, edit it out later. Um, I was wrestling at some point when my wife and I were still dating, whether we should be together because she was kind of thinking through her faith. She wasn't a Christian. You know, should I be dating a non-Christian? You know, for all of those evangelical types out there, you know, am am I unequally yoked or or whatever the Mm -hmm. the term is? And I went away and I prayed and fasted, but I also was walking around the city and someone was handing out free juice. And I was like, ooh, free juice. And I went over and just like took a shot of the free juice. And I was like, oh, wait, I just completely destroyed my fasting day. Uh, And then at the end of the day. (laughs) I love that. Free juice. Yeah, exactly. Free juice. Like Buster in Arrested Development. Unlimited juice. (laughs) This party's going to be off the hook. But then at the end of the day, I was like, yeah, I probably should break up with her. And then I was like, yeah, I don't really want to. And then we got married a year later. been married for 18 years. (laughs) 
those are those are those are my my incredible stories of uh, fasting and hearing nothing. But guess what? God did not abandon me. As far as I can tell, he's still been with me in spite of my <laughs> flailing attempts at self-discipline and seeking his will. Free juice. Maybe there's something Eucharistic there. <laughs> oh, good. Yes, go there. By all means, go there. All right. We better call this episode free juice. Free. Hey, look, free juice. <laughs> Guys, we will be back in two weeks. I really do hope the next couple of weeks go well for you. And I think we can announce officially that RJ Heyman, after cajoling from both Sarah and myself and other folks, will be in New York City. He will be speaking the first night. And uh, it will not be on the topic of fasting. That much is clear. <laughs> so um, – we will be there all in New York, so um, registration will open for that. We put up the whole schedule earlier this week, so definitely check that out. And uh, that's all I got to say. You guys have any any final parting shots? Happy Ash Wednesday. Can't wait for the conference. <laughs> Happy Ash Wednesday. Happy Valentine's Day. And Happy uh, Valentine's Day. Yeah. Because love isn't complicated enough as it is. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. Bye. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. 